It's March 27th, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we will be your geeks in residence for the next hour. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Brian Butling from the Box Jelly, here to tell us about the latest startup weekend. Finally, we'll find out what happens when technology, innovation intersect with food. Have your questions, your suggestions, your favorite apps ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. A University of Hawaii oceanography professor has received a $5 million grant from the National Science Foundation to study the impact of various ecosystems management strategies for regional freshwater supplies. Specifically, the project will evaluate the hydraulic, ecologic, and economic effects of climate change and sea level rise on the Florida Everglades and the effectiveness of various environmental policies and practices. David Ho, who is with the UH School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology, or SOEST, is working with researchers from several Florida research institutions as well as from universities in Michigan and Pennsylvania. He said in a statement, My role in this project is to study the effect of changing freshwater supply on carbon cycling in the mangrove ecosystem of the Everglades. With this project, I also aim to determine how ecosystem services provided by the mangroves might change with water management practices and climate change. The carbon cycle is a fundamental process in sustaining life on Earth and strongly linked to climate change. Although focused on mangroves in Florida, the project is aimed at improving our understanding of the role and impact of mangroves ecosystems around the world. The low-growing trees are resistant to salt water and require little oxygen and are prevalent along several shores in Hawaii. The invasive species has overtaken once productive marshes and ponds throughout the state, crowding out native plants and dwindling habitats for native fish and birds. Now, you know, in Hawaii, uh, the mangrove isn't really a a common thing uh, until it got introduced and now it's... It's like uh, all along the like the Pearl City bike path. It's mm-hmm. all mangroves, and if it wasn't for the, I think it was the Navy that actually contracted the um, contractors to go out and cut it. Uh, that was really clogging up a lot of the waterways. Well, so this is interesting to have a Hawaii researcher, I guess uh, he he has some history in Florida, looking at this. And, of course, in other places, mangroves are almost naturalized in the sense that because they've been a persistent part of the shoreline or in freshwater lakes, they're already kind of creating, uh, you know, having impact and being part of the the ecosystem that's there. So Mm -hmm. not necessarily as negative as we see it here, but, you know, specifically understanding how it can affect freshwater supplies. uh, I think that it would be relevant for us as well. Um, but of course, over and of course, there are also stories about um, mangroves being used uh, intentionally sometimes for even kind of retaining shoreline mm-hmm. or, or extending property uh, for private property holders. So it's a very controversial subject, but one that's worthy of study. For well, sure. the the thing that was interesting about uh, David Ho and his work in Florida is that he he has been, I guess, he perfected this technique, uh, and it's called the Everglade Tracer Release Experiment, and he's able to sort of trace the flow of fresh water through wide swaths of, of uh, the Everglades right? And, and, and look at how you know the fresh water is moving as a result of climate change. Yeah, and if we're seeing sea level rise, then right. that, you know, it could either be a barrier or a, or a problem in terms of um, sustaining life as well. In other research news, a meteorology professor at UH led an international study focused on historic monsoon rainfall levels, this in an attempt to improve predictions of future rainfall as part of high-level civic and economic planning. Their findings, published last week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, suggest that natural climate swings have a greater impact on monsoon rainfall than human-made greenhouse gases and global warming. 
Much like the study being launched in Florida, UH researcher Bing, Bing uh, Wang said uh, he's hoping to help uh, communities plan ahead, whether in deploying future infrastructure or boosting sustainable economic development. Monsoon rainfall in the northern hemisphere impacts 60% of the world population. Uh, to pre- predict the future, Wang and his colleagues in China and Korea looked to the past. They reviewed climate data over the last three decades, a period during which the global mean temperature rose about 0.4 degrees centigrade. Many meteorological models suggest that summer monsoon circulation should have gotten weaker as a result of global warming, but the study found that it has, in fact, substantially intensified. In fact, they found a 9.5% increase in rainfall. That increase is largely attributed to a cooling of the eastern Pacific that has been observed since 1998. Along with other long-term swings in ocean temperature believed to be naturally occurring, the research points out that we may need to account for natural climate cycles along with the impact of human activity. Well, Obviously, this is a very complex uh, issue because, uh, you know, if you were to attribute this just to climate change, uh, you would have expected one sort of uh, like increase in monsoon mm-hmm. activity. Uh, but it's actually due to this sort of cooling of the eastern Pacific. Right, a 9.5% increase when the, the other models say it should have been about a 2.6% increase during that same time. And it's very specific in terms of studying the cycles and the rotations of the, of, of the atmosphere, um, stuff I'd never even heard of, like a mega El Nino, the interdecadal Pacific Oscillation and things that move either east and west or north and south. They're on the equator or they're not, and where they carry the rain. But it is an important uh, subject for sure. 60% of the population affected by this sort mm-hmm. of rainfall, so something that we definitely have to study. Next up, uh, another study focused on the impact of humans on the environment has concluded that the Pacific Islands were once home to over a 1,000 unique species of birds that suffered a fast collective extinction soon after people colonized the region. Uh, including waterfall, flying birds, and game birds. The extinction count could be as high as 1,300 bird species. Their numbers decimated between 700 and 3,500 years ago as ancient seafarers colonized remote islands scattered throughout the Pacific. The findings were reported on Monday by researchers at the Zoological Society of London. While scientists were confident that human activity like deforestation and overhunting did kill several bird species, they weren't able to put a number on it until now, with estimates ranging from 800 to over 2,000 species previously. Since fossil records across the Pacific Islands are incomplete, this research team analyzed 41 islands for both fossils as well as historical accounts of flightless birds. Armed with that information, they then created a mathematical formula to to estimate extinction rates on each island. Well, the team um, concluded that at least 983 bird species died out after the Pacific Islands were colonized with songbirds, seabirds, and others adding more, even more to the death toll. Drier and smaller islands saw higher extinction rates, likely because they could easily be deforested, leaving birds no place to hide. Lead researcher Tim Blackburn, director of the Society's um, Institute of Zoology, said in a statement, Bird extinctions in the tropical Pacific did not stop with these losses. Forty more species disappeared after the Europeans arrived, and many more species are still threatened with extinction today. And, of course, you know, in Hawaii, we're probably uh, the extinction capital of mm. the world. And, you know, if you if you look outside and just try to see... Well, on Oahu, there are probably very few native species that you're going to see in any metropolitan area on Oahu. And, and even if you go to the back, uh, you know, sort of like the, the wilderness, 
uh, you're lucky to see an elepio or something. Right, and, and they talk about some some of the specific birds that were extinct even before we were able to record it. For example, the Hawaiian moa nalo, which uh, was wiped out even before Captain Cook arrived. We only knew that they existed because of fossils. Or they were talking about this bird in New Caledonia, basically a 66-pound chicken. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did note that larger birds, flightless birds, they were probably fat. They were faster, you know, <laughs> driven to extinction because they were probably easier to catch and were more valuable as food. But they basically describe, uh, the paper basically describes this as the largest extinction event um, in, you know, in history. I mean, talking about 12,000 years back, and it, it all happened here in the Pacific. So effectively amounting to about 10% of the world's birds species. You know, we've had maybe 10,000 different species of birds on the planet today. Mm-hmm. So if we've lost, you know, 15 or 1,200 of them in one period, that's a pretty big deal. And uh, finally, we wanted to report on some of the technology bills that are reaching critical milestones in the year, uh, this year's legislative session. We'll start with HB 858, which would establish the High Growth Initiative to fund startups in Hawaii. It went before the House Ways and Means Committee this morning. According to Carl Fuchs, the bill was passed, but without a dollar figure attached. While the initial proposal from Governor Abercrombie called for $20 million, the High Growth Initiative only saw $8 million included in the executive budget, which was separately approved by the Senate committee today. Another bill before Ways and Means today was House Bill 358, which would require both chambers of the legislature to implement rules to support live audio or video conference testimony from the neighbor islands. Hailed as a way to better incorporate the voices of constituents beyond Honolulu, a pilot program was launched this year for two committees in the Senate. This bill would make video testimony more universal and provide funds to build out the system. And tomorrow, the committee will hear HB 632, which makes open data an official funded objective of the state government. As we've previously noted here on the show, Bert and I, along with others in the local tech community, have testified in support of this bill, which would require executive branch departments to make relevant data sets available online. Meanwhile, the future is uncertain for HB 71, which would require the University of Hawaii to extend the current land lease for the Manoa Innovation Center. That bill, which would give the High Technology Development Corporation another 10 years to use the property to foster high-tech businesses, has yet to be scheduled for the Ways and Means Committee. Well, and there's a, you know, there's a lot of uh, bills actually kind of uh, getting reviewed by Ways and Means right now. And uh, But uh, I think for the most part, the ones that are going... Uh, two ways and means that are getting scheduled. They've already been sort of vetted through mm. the other more technical committees. And I think ways and means is, is um, getting them uh, now approved to go on to the uh, conference period where they actually get together with the House and Senate and, and sort of see, uh, sort of reconcile not only the appropriation, but also the language that might have uh, had a companion bill and is coming over right, from the right. House or the Senate and reconcile, reconcile yeah, the, the languages. And there's a lot. I mean, of course, uh, Sandy Park from the HDDC basically says that, you know, trying to rally support for the Manoa Innovation Center, saying that if it doesn't get heard by next week, the bill is basically dead for this year with the current lease ter- um, go, you know, expiring next year, so time is certainly running out there. A few of the other bills that I noticed that uh, went before Ways and Means today, there was uh, HB 1392, and we talked to Heather Giuni of, uh, uh, mm-hmm. for the video archive, so they're trying to get funding for that. Well, in fact, I that. saw Chris Lee over there, uh, um, I guess, attending the hearing, and uh, 
he'd like to come on and talk about you know the project and the project has come a long way since we last had Heather on. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. And uh, the last one was HB eleven forty nine. It was basically saying that you know before you can build a wind energy facility, you have to prepare and be prepared for having to decommission it and taking all of that stuff down. Mm. Of course, because of some derelict equipment that's now left on some properties here in the state. But even the PUC says that that that's not needed. The bill's not needed because usually it's up to the landowner to make those requirements with a leaseholder when they're putting in the wind energy uh, equipment. Okay, and finally, a couple of quick stories we wanted to share with you. Last week, we reported that the state tax court added a $70 million fine on top of the $158 million in unpaid taxes assessed to online travel sites like Travelocity, Priceline, and Orbitz. This week, the Travel Technology Association said that they are appealing the decision, adding that the ruling is undermining the Hawaii tourism industry by driving up the cost of travel services and telling visitors to go to Mexico or the Caribbean instead. And on the tech calendar tonight, not one, but two separate startup events are taking place in Honolulu after the show. Over at Inter-Island Terminal, an information session is being held to gauge interest in establishing a local chapter of the Founders Institute. And right next door at HQHNL, state-funded startup Accelerator Kinetic Labs is hosting a pitch practice session. Both events, which are mere feet apart, eat from each other in Kaka'ako, start at 6.30 p.m. And, of course, speaking of startups, now joining us in the studio is Brian Butling from the Box Jelly to tell us about the next startup weekend in uh, Honolulu. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure, as always. Now, startup weekend is becoming a regular occurrence. I think it's, what, every maybe every six months? It's yeah, like two um, times a year. we're looking at it uh, twice a year, so April and October. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there are now other programs. There's a startup weekend program specific to UH, mm-hmm. but the startup weekend Honolulu program, which uh, you're helping to promote is the has been around the longest and running the longest and uh, so what's different this time around what's different uh, I, I would say the talent level I think that we're reaching a uh, a broader talent um, talent pool and not only that but the popularity is um, increasing I think uh, people are coming out of the woodwork and are really looking at it as this is a proven uh, concept it, mm-hmm. it, it works it, it gets the entrepreneurial fire and that the, the technology fire built under a lot of our our fellow uh, uh, programmers and designers and entrepreneurs out here. And so, so, so for those that may not know exactly the format of a startup weekend, how would you describe it? Okay, so startup weekend. Um, it's actually taking place April twelfth to the fourteenth, and it is an opportunity for designers, developers, engineers, um, IT professionals, business people, uh, PR people, marketing people to get together. And pitch uh, their business idea, an entre- any any dream idea that you have on a Friday night, and you form teams, and you basically just have fifty four hours to live the life of an um, entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, you pretty much throw away your um, normal your, your <laughs> well, you throw away your, your 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 weekend, but you you sort of gravitate away from your normal nine to five, and pretty much indulge in becoming an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. highs and lows of um, having a business plan and an idea and, and the camaraderie of forming a team. And really, at the, at the end of the weekend, the goal is to, one, learn and, and live the lessons of an entrepreneur, but two, maybe get a working model and 
hopefully forming a company at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So the Kinetic Labs event tonight, for example, is pitch practice, you know, practicing the pitch of a startup when you're looking for funding or partners yeah. in your project. But Startup Weekend is an accelerated, hyper-accelerated experience through through that throughout the entire lifespan where you're going to start with the pitch. You may or may not get support for your idea. If you do not get support for your idea, you're going to want to join another team, and then mm-hmm. you learn how to contribute to, to someone else's vision, perhaps, and yeah. playing a role in that. Yeah. Now, in past events, we've talked about kind of a shortage on on the technology side, and we've there's been an ongoing discussion of finding technical fo- co-founders versus the business people. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's going to continue to be a constraint, looking for somebody who can actually code and put an app together? I think it will be, um, but it's it's not gonna it's it's it to a certain extent. Um, and the only reason why is because I think technical co-founders know their value, mm-hmm. and they're gonna want to see if everyone else realizes their value. Um, so you'll see that on Friday night um, during the pitches. Now, who are some of the judges? Because I know you've had a variety of different mm-hmm. judges come in. And, yeah. and in yeah. this particular uh, setting, are you having some return judges or some new judges? No, we are pretty much stacked with judges this year. We actually have a wait list. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah. So it's um, our, our big judge of the year this year is Slava uh, Rubin of Indiegogo. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. we're flying him in. Um, we have um, Tina Fitch of Switchfly flying in. Um, Dan Lewick of Ikezo is one of them. Tim Dick, uh, Kelly Mitchell, uh, JJ of JJ Dolan is also going to be a judge. Cool. So, yeah. so when you uh, when you say you're flying them in, I mean, uh, Startup Weekend is a you know is a money making thing. I mean, you have to nobody's giving you money to fly these guys in. You gotta no. no. It's yeah. through ticket sales and yeah, all that. It's, it's through ticket sales, sponsorships. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our big sponsors is uh, HMSA. Um, Hawaii News Now is another sponsorship. So. Uh, I mean, we're a nonprofit, and I mean, the whole idea of a startup weekend is to build this startup community, and I think we've done a great job. At now, so there far. are there are often themes that emerge, and for example, you mentioned this year's sponsor or this event sponsor being HMSA, yeah. and I do recall that at previous startup weekends, a lot of the ideas were related to healthcare and providing services and helping helping people yeah. manage their health. I couldn't help but notice that perhaps in you know in line with our topic for the rest of the show yeah. is uh, with one of the judges being from JJ Dolan's, which yeah. is a restaurant in yeah. Chinatown. Yeah. Do you think food, or what do you think the theme might be this year? A lot this of it, 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 the discussion rolling around has been food, um, finding a way to sort of integrate, maybe having menus, the whole ordering, the the restaurant dining experience Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, being um, tackled. Another one is um, integrating all the APIs out there. Um, So bringing in the services of Yelp, Foursquare, Facebook, basically all these startups that have, you know, established themselves, integrating all that together and figuring out a way to, you know, solve it or, or access them through one app. Now, this is just an idea that you might have, uh, but it's it's really ultimately going to be determined by the people that come and, and yeah. what kinds of ideas. Yeah. So, yeah. again, where, where, when, and uh, is this taking place? So, this is April 12th to the 14th. Um, it's going to be taking place at the Box Jelly. Um, tickets can be found online at honolulu.startupweekend.org. Um, if not, you can go to Facebook, Honolulu Startup Weekend. And uh, Eventbrite, Honolulu Startup Weekend. Sounds good. Thanks, Brian, for joining us. Yeah, thank you, guys. Pleasure. Thank you. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Pony and Brandon Askew from Street Grinds and Brian Dote from Tapiki to talk about 
innovations in food, service, and delivery. Now, what are some new ways through technology or apps that we interact with our food choices? Perhaps the menu system that Brian was talking about? Who's building that? We might hear about it. We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. So please give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 1-877-941-3689. And, of course, you can also tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. Eat local. It's an appealing idea. It supports the community, but it can also be expensive. Will that always be the case in the islands? What is Hawaii's food future? Join us on Hawaii Public Radio as we take a week-long look at the issues, options, and choices we face together. News reports, talk shows, and on the web, feeding ourselves Hawaii's food future, all week on Hawaii Public Radio. Aloha, Michael Tudderton here. I know what you're thinking. Another fundraiser? They just had one. Well, yes, time has an intrinsic, inescapable characteristic in that it just keeps going and going. And so, of course, does our broadcast schedule. The obvious difference? Time can't stop. HPR will continue to carry out its statewide mission, but we need your support for that. The future is an exciting place for public radio. Thanks for being part of it. Welcome back to Bite Mars Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Pony and Brandon Naskew and Brian Dote. Pony and Brandon are the organizers behind the popular uh, Eat the Street and uh, Street Grinds food truck gatherings. And uh, Meanwhile, Brian is a local mobile app developer. He's working on several apps, including one we want to talk about today called Menui. And what drives the development of these new applications? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. You can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands, Pony, Brandon, and Brian. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for having me. Hi. Aloha. Well, you know, uh, since the Brian that just left was talking about some potential apps that could get uh, developed at the Startup Weekend, uh, we have Brian Dote here who uh, has been sort of uh, sort of under the radar, maybe getting ready to release something called Menui. Brian, what, tell us a little bit about this app. Yeah, Menui is a, is a menu. Menui is a app where we provide restaurant owners the ability to uh, showcase their products. And so rather than it being client-controlled from the uh, end users taking photos and providing photos you know, in an aggregated method, um, what Menui does instead is it allows the restaurant owners to put the best fo- their best foot forward and provide high quality photos of their dishes. So how did the how did the idea of Menui come up? So my co-founder Harvey Koo had this problem where he would go to restaurants um, and look at the menus and see the photos of the dishes on the menu and not get what he thought he was ordering. And mm. so you go to to a restaurant and you see this either either one way or the other. You see the beautiful menu item. Um, a beautiful photo, and what you get is not what you expected, or vice versa. You, it looks crummy, so you don't even order it, mm-hmm. and you don't realize until you look at the table next to you, and you're like, "Oh my God, I want that dessert." You know, had the photo not been uh, an iPhone with with poor lighting, I would have ordered it. 
but I didn't know that. So. Well, that's interesting. I mean, of course, we've been seeing a lot of intersection between apps and technology and food, whether you're talking about Pinterest or uh, Hipstamatic and Instagram. It's all about visual presentations and people just taking pictures of their food all the time. Now restaurants are, are either embracing it or just flat out fighting the practice. But I can see what you're saying because, you know, sometimes somebody might take a great picture or the picture that's up on the wall is clearly, you know, done with a food decorator and it's not really what you get. Or it's the opposite where the person who took the picture that happens to be on the website has a crumpled up napkin on the side and, you know, actually took a bite out of it before they posted the picture. So have you seen a lot of uh, interest in kind of a more professional presentation? Is that what's driving this app? Exactly. Um, A lot of restaurants are interested in a professional presentation as long as it remains authentic to both what they're providing and and the the location itself. And so for our first uh, sort of our pilot project, we did La Tour Cafe and we hired a professional food photographer to go in we plated the entire menu, and she shot photos of the entire menu. And through that experience, you, you quickly learn that um, it matters if the, the pizza has three pieces of tomatoes or two pieces of tomatoes because the customer will demand three if you include three in the photo. And so what we strived for was authenticity to make sure that everything that we shot for the mobile menus was accurate. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Pony, I'm, I'm curious – um, an application like that, do you see, let's say, uh, used by some of the folks in the food truck business to get their menus out there? Because I, I rarely see any kind of menus that are, are available for all these food trucks. Yeah, I, I think that, that would definitely be something that um, the food trucks could benefit from and, you know, and use. Of course, there's lots of those pictures out there. Um, from their fans and their customers, but um, very few actually uh, control their own photos that they post. No, I think what you basically are seeing is kind of this this collision between an interest in professional presentation and sort of the idea where you can rely on crowdsourcing to provide content. And even in that model, you have some issues where, you know, all of a sudden you're relying on your customers to do your promotion, but the, the, the double-edged sword is that, you know, that might hurt uh, your company as well. Now, Brian, what is is there any level of consumer contribution or interaction with Menui? I mean, is, is do I as a user get to say, this is a great picture of this design? or I don't know what the photographer was smoking, but this dessert does not look like what's in this app. Unfortunately, in our current release, there is no um, contribution by the end user or the consumer. Um, All of the content is created by the restaurant owners themselves. Uh, What we do allow the consumer to do is share the the high-quality restaurant photos, uh, the dish photos on their social networks to gain, you know, to to share what they're eating, um, but not necessarily take photos themselves. So then uh, the, the, the business model really kind of revolves around getting the restaurants to buy into this and, and get pretty high-quality photos of their food and, and menus displayed uh, f- on this app. Correct. It's, it's really, um, it's really a, a good vehicle for a restaurant owner to get their, their product out there. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the burden is on the restaurant owner. Um, in, the, in the early days, we sort of uh, tossed around the ideas of, well, how do you get all this quality content? How do you get high-quality content? Can you get it from the average consumer? Uh, can you crowdsource this type of photography? And you know what we learned is the answer is probably not. So the the, so the social is there a social element to this app? Uh, not really, then, right? Well, the, it's sharing the high quality photos. Exactly. Right? Right, um, right. Right. Currently, the only social aspect is to share the photos of the dishes that you're probably enjoying at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the theme of the day is food. It's part of a larger food week happening here on Hawaii Public Radio. Now, Brian, would you consider yourself a foodie? I mean, you've done apps where people are 
putting sushi together on a conveyor belt. You've also, though, done some apps for the city. You've done some very utilitarian event apps. So uh, where from deep within your programmer's soul did the did the passion for something like building menu-y and focusing on professional content come from? I think food and technology just go together like like peanut butter and jelly. I mean, anytime you go to a restaurant, that's that's exactly what we do to enhance the experience. We're, we're using our smartphones to take photos, to share photos, of food, whether it be Facebook or Instagram or any of these sort of food apps, um, to make the experience better, uh, you share it. And I'm so, kind of wondering if uh, if the food industry in general is going through a bit of disruption now with you know all these, uh, let's say, 2.0 technologies or mobile devices, and you know getting more information out to the people that are going to restaurants. I think there seems to be a whole kind of uh, uh, paradigm shift now. Yeah, I, I think a good case in point is I had a really high-end customer interested in a mobile application. And the, 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 the uh, rubbing point for them is, do you want people to enjoy your restaurant and the food? Or do you want them to be on an iPad reading about the food? <laughs> and if, you, if they're reading about the food and learning more about the food and, and enjoying it through an iPad experience, you can't turn your tables as quickly mm. because people are lounging around. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. so how do you balance um, providing a, an enhanced experience without ruining the restaurant experience? Now, Brandon, I see you're sitting there with a, is that a Surface uh, RT or Surface Pro? This is a Surface Pro. Ah, okay. So you're a pro. You're definitely a technology person and you work with Pony on Eat the Street, which is in its own way kind of a disruptive uh, startup focused on food. Now, what do you think about that kind of collision that Brian's talking about where people are starting to put technology between them and the very natural visceral experience of eating food? Well, I think it's like you see them looking down while they're driving or walking down the street. People are going to use technology in the restaurant or outside on the curb while they're waiting to get into the restaurant. I would be willing to uh, let them use their technology so that I captured them as a client or a customer. So, so I'm curious, Brian, though. I mean, do you see the technology becoming, uh, being put between the actual, uh, let's say, restaurant goer and the food itself? Because wouldn't, wouldn't most of that experience be done at home or before you get to the restaurant? Once you get to the restaurant, you already know as a result of the application what you know, food you want to get. And then, then the experience becomes you know, with you and the food itself. I think it's definitely put, something, put a barrier between you and the Russian experience. It's sort of like a, a professional football game with all of the commercials. Like, have you ever been at a, at a restaurant and you're about to dive into a dish and someone said, wait, 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 I need a photo. Right? That happened it, just it probably, today. <laughs> it probably happens all the time. And, and so your experience is already about share, snap, photo, eat. Uh-huh. Share, snap, photo, eat, as opposed to just enjoying the dish or enjoying the company or enjoying the, the ambiance of the place. You know, oh. we're, we're sort of focused in on getting the plate in the right angle. We don't want anyone to touch the dessert before we dive into it. Um, I think that's definitely put a, put a, you know, a hard stop between the dishes as you, as you go through a, a meal. Well, you know, I'm one of those people who does make who does ask my coworkers before they eat their food if I can take a picture of it. We just went to Jane's Fountain, and I shared all of those photos. I love, you know, some of these mom-and-pop places, but I can certainly see what you're talking about. Now, now, Brian, we unfortunately don't have you for the rest of the show, but before you go, can you let us know um, what your – I mean, when will we see Menui? What's the what's the future for that app? So, so Menui is already available on the App Store, but what we're doing is we are um, – we're slowly signing up restaurants. We have about 10 restaurants at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
not all of them have their menus shot. And mm. so we're slowly adding menus as we go. We currently have about five full menus in the app itself. You know, it's available today for download, and we'll just continue to grow from so here. So you, when you grow and add new restaurants, do you have to upgrade or you know, do a new upload to the, uh, to the application? Nope. The application is uh, pulling data off of a CMS in the cloud. Oh, Fantastic. very good. Well, thank you, Thanks, Brian, Brian, for joining us yeah. today. Thank you. All right, so we are uh, going to be getting a little bit more information from uh, both Pony and uh, Brandon about some of the activities that are going on with uh, with Eat the Street. And, you know, uh, Pony, we've had you on for, uh, I think it probably was like a, maybe a couple of years ago. And yeah. and at that time, you were just sort of starting off. And, and, yeah, uh, we were just a Twitter handle. <laughs> and you've come a, a long way. Yeah. Yeah, I think the last time I was here, we literally were one month out from our first Eat mm-hmm, the Street mm-hmm. event. Um, and Friday, we actually celebrate our third Eat the Street Japan. And so... Um, that's right. Now that's coming up like next... It's on Friday. This week. This yeah, week. Right, it's on Friday. Right. And so, um, yeah, we, we've we come a long way since our Twitter handle mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, just gaining a little cult following. And the first event that we had on Kapiolani Boulevard, which is um, a memorable event for anybody who came out to that. It was really a, because of the nature of the way we started our business. Like I've always called it the largest tweet up that I think Honolulu has ever experienced. Um, and, and that was awesome. And here we are three years later almost. And uh, uh, I think we have about six to 8,000 people strong that come in and eat from the food trucks every month. That's terrific. We're talking to Brandon and Pony Askew from Street Grinds and the Eat the Street events, which are, again, certainly very successful. And as she mentioned, it was made successful in part through Twitter and other social technologies to build a crowd. We, of course, want to hear from you as well. If you can think of an app or a tool that's helped you hack the kitchen, make you a better creator of or consumer of food, give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And so, Pony, you said you were once a Twitter handle, and even I, when you first surfaced, although I was excited, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work out. How is this going to happen? And now I'm actually, if anything, intimidated by the massive crowds that come to the street. (laughs) Even though you come out to Mililani, where I live, even that is a huge crowd. Uh, Given that success, do you think that Twitter and Facebook and the social sharing that people do is still a critical part of what you do, or are you more of a conventional business today? Oh, that's a good question. I I definitely believe in the power of social media is the power of community. And it brings a community together of like-minded individuals that love food, love local entrepreneurs, love small businesses, and love to support them. And so it brings them all together. Um, But I also like to think of us as an innovative company as well. And um, it's not been, you know, just plop the the trucks in a parking lot and see, see people show up. It's been um, some creativity, you know, uh, working with the food trucks, maintaining these relationships. It's it's not been the easy event, maybe from the outside looking in, um, but fun and exciting nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Now, Brandon, uh, you're the uh, CTO of of uh, Street Grinds, and and uh, I think uh, it's been kind of an interesting. I guess journey that you folks have traveled on. I, I know at one point you were working for, uh, you know, the major telecom company here in Hawaii, and and then now you've uh, foregone the full time job and focusing now full time on on uh, eat the street and street grinds. I mean, tell us just your story. Well, that's correct. I mean, I went from one full time job to three full time jobs. Oh, lucky you! <laughs> Lots of work, but it's a it's a, a work of passion. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, my journey, basically, like you mentioned, starting you know with the major telecom company in Hawaii, going to our family business, we were able to really mold what we're looking to do with technology and how we use technology, mentioning social media and websites and eventually even apps as well. So that's part of the journey that, you know, I love to focus on is how do we incorporate technology into all aspects of our company. And, and you're building a, an application, right? Street Grinds. I mean, what what is it that uh, you're looking at rolling out? Uh, correct. We have a Street Grinds app right now um, that connects our, our fans to all of the content that we produce, um, Instagram photos and RSS feeds from our websites, mm-hmm. um, also to videos from YouTube. So you can go to our Street Grinds app in your app store, Android or Apple, download it, and stay connected with us, um, see when we have events coming up as well. We are also currently working on an app for our restaurant, uh, Taste, that will do similar, you know, bringing menus and bringing the different vendors that are coming into the restaurant as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I did want to talk to you about Taste, which is, I think, uh, sort of a pop-up restaurant concept, and that is a restaurant that doesn't sort of go through the traditional evolution of finding a retail space and paying rent and building it out and basically trying to survive there, but rather it sort of explodes into being in a space and then perhaps just as quickly can go away. Mm-hmm. Um, Pony, um, is that is that sort of like the future that you see in terms of restaurant uh, restaurant the restaurant business before the the disruption was food trucks that can be anywhere and drive around and now restaurants uh, don't even need to have a permanent address yeah no i definitely think it's a great stepping stone for our food vendors um what it is it, for us is also a way to um be sure that f- anybody who is a food entrepreneur has um a few more steps involved in the process to ensure their success. Um, and everybody knows that the food industry and the retail industry are probably two of the most riskiest businesses to get involved in. And if you can start off as a food truck and um, and then enter a space like Taste where you can um, test your concept, see what really is entailed in having a brick-and-mortar space, even if it's just for a day, um, it, I, I highly believe that it will increase the success rate of food entrepreneurs. And that's really the basis of why we do taste um, and and have created kind of like a food venue. You know, if you go to a music venue and you see a different artist every day, you go to this food venue and you have a different food person every day. So it's great for uh, all the customers. It's ever revolving, but it's also um, super wonderful for somebody who's interested in becoming a food entrepreneur. Very good, very good. Uh, we're talking to Pony and Brandon Askew from uh, Eat the Street and Street Grinds, and uh, if uh, and of course we're talking about food and food apps. And if you have your favorite food app, why don't you give us a call and. Let us know what that is. The number here is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. We actually have uh, invited a caller to call in all the way from New York. Uh, Alan uh, Solidum is actually attending an, a competition over in New York called Hack the Kitchen. So we wanted uh, Alan to give us uh, some time to tell us uh, what this Hack the Kitchen is all about. Alan, welcome to the show. Hi, Bert. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, so uh, Campbell's uh, released an API, or application programming interface, uh, for their over 2,000 uh, recipes and put a call out to all of the developers to create apps to answer the question, what's for dinner? Uh, so in this national contest, it received over 150 applications, all competing for $50,000 uh, as the winning prize. 
And our two-man team in Hawaii, uh, Anti-Social Labs, uh, made the finals <laughs> and was invited to present in uh, Google New York City along with five other teams. Well, well I like the name of your company, yeah, Anti-Social anti- Labs. Now, now <laughs> this, so this is Campbell's, the soup company, and you say they're API. What sort of API, what sort of application programming interface, what sort of data streams out of the Campbell's soup company? Uh, it's basically just uh, any recipe that you'd find, like, in a book, um, and they just break it down into uh, uh, basically, like, for developers, it'd be called, like, JSON data or XML data, mm-hmm. so we can parse it uh, after doing a search for, like, if you want to see recipes that just have beef in it or just fish, then you can pull down all those recipes. So, Alan, uh, how, did, how did you hear about uh, Hack the Kitchen? I mean, was this something on your radar, or did somebody turn you on to this? Uh, actually, uh, I believe, actually, I saw it on my Facebook stream or Twitter stream, but through, I believe it's Wedware Wednesday, actually. Oh, fantastic. And then as a result of that, uh, you know, you... you um, partnered up uh, and, and developed something. And, and you were saying, like, uh, how many people actually, uh, let's say, was part of this competition? Uh, well, like I said earlier, there was over 150 applicants. And uh, out of those, it was basically a two-phase process where uh, we had 150 applicants who applied. And then from that, they chose 30 semifinalists. And those 30 semifinalists built uh, prototypes. And from those 30 semi-finalists, they picked six and invited them to come to New York. Well, you know, we want to. I want to. I want to get you to tell us your story about how you ended up, uh, you know, getting to New York and what the uh, sort of the the end what result. your app was yeah, in particular. Uh, what well, it of did. course, right? Uh, but oh. we're going <laughs> to hold that thought just for a second. We will be right sure. back after the short break to continue our conversation with Pony and Brandon Askew and uh, Alan Saladom from. Uh, 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 Hacked our kitchen and uh, innovations in food delivery. We'll learn. We'll talk more about the food truck phenomenon, about whether all of this social eating is a fad or a non or a future trend. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Your app recommendations. You can give us a call at nine four one three six eight nine or from the neighbor islands eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. This is Bite Marks Cafe. No matter what their specialty, today's artists need to reach beyond the physical setting of a gallery to reach a wider audience, and that can mean learning a new specialty, photography. We'll talk with a photographer who teaches fine artists how to make a pictorial record of their work, tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Brian Goldman was always a perfect student. A classmate of mine in high school once said that Brian Goldman would study for a blood test. Now that he's a doctor, he teaches med students. Many of them have that look in their eyes that they're pristine. They've never made a mistake and they never will. Of course, until it happens. Making mistakes. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday at noon, following New Dimensions. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Pony and Brandon Askew about creating new food applications, as well as joining us on the phone from New York, Alan, who participated in Hack the Kitchen. And is the food industry the new institution in need of some hacking? You can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break, we were talking to Alan about uh, his app. And, Alan, you, you never got to tell us what your app is called. Sure. I, our, our idea we came up with is something called Recipe Remix. 
Mm-hmm. So basically, have you ever looked at a recipe and kind of wished that it was different or maybe there's like a vegetarian or healthier option? Sure. Um, so what we built was uh, a means for you to not only be able to search through the campus recipes, but tweak these recipes to your unique taste or uh, quote-unquote remix recipes. Um, so our platform encourages the users to create uh, collaborate and communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since our users are remixing recipes, we like to call them dish jockeys or DJs. Ah, ah dish jockeys. And so would you say that there were like genres of these recipes, like there are genres of music? So you mentioned vegetarian, maybe low sodium, maybe meat lovers. I mean, what were some of the ideas thrown about uh, as you put your app forward? Uh, well, the app basically, um, our MVP, our minimal viable product, was just to demonstrate that you could tweak a recipe and save it. Uh, our, the designer who worked with me, Mark Guillermo, uh, from Wall to Wall, the brilliant designer, actually came up with an idea that maybe we should actually uh, have moods, so maybe make it more like a Spotify for like uh, hmm. uh, food uh, curation. Uh, but oddly enough, the winner of the contest was actually a team um, that put an app called Food Mood out, which basically does that same thing. Um, so they ask if uh, if you're uh, happy or sad, and from there it determines what recipes to kind of show. Mm-hmm. And it also uses uh, location data uh, to check the weather. So I guess if it's raining, maybe you're more interested in getting comfort foods, like something like soup or something like I that. I see. So, Alan, how did uh, your app do, and uh, what's the next step for uh, Recipe Remix? Well, we I uh, basically flew in uh, on a red eye to uh, New York, landed, uh, took the public transport public trans- transit to Google New York and presented. Um, so I was pretty beat up, and uh, <laughs> we had three minutes to present and then three minutes of Q and A, uh, and course with the demo guides there you know not everything goes as planned and so uh, but we were basically able to tell most of the story and uh we unfortunately did not place uh in mm. first or second which were the um money prizes uh but uh so we're somewhere between three and six out of 150 participants which is uh, oh, that's pretty, great that's awesome. pretty amazing what's yeah. uh so what any next uh, next steps plans for the future well uh I, I still have to talk to uh, Mark, uh, my partner in crime in this, uh, to see uh, how he wants if he wants to continue going forward. Um, you can follow us, I guess, on like uh, www.antisociallabs.com to uh, see our story unfold and see, see where we keep going with this. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks a lot, Alan, for calling in. Appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. Have Thank a you. safe trip back. <laughs> safe trip and perhaps a less exhausting trip back. Well. <laughs> Uh, we are talking about food and technology and disrupting the dinner table. If you've got a suggestion for your favorite app that helps you cook or helps you dine better, you can give us a call at 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Um, but I I do want to get back to Pony and Brandon, and uh, we were talking also about taste, which is sort of a a come-and-go, a pop-up restaurant concept. And I have to admit, I don't even know anything about it except what I see on Facebook. And it doesn't sound like it's the sort of thing that you would be able to even print up menus or have signs for. So even despite these constraints, Pony, is it's turning out to be a success? 
Yeah, well, I mean, what we do have some consistency and some predictability. Um, and what we do quarterly is we actually have lunch service Tuesday through Friday. And um, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, there, and so on and so forth, there's um, the same uh, chef or food vendor mm. there. And so, for example, on Tuesdays, we have Ono to Go, and they'll be there um, up until the end of May. That's Wedge. Wedge, yeah. Wedge Lee. Yep. Yeah, with Wedge. And um, we have... Um, Quentin Fry from Salt doing kind of, you know, one of his, uh, I guess, concepts that he would not necessarily do in Salt. He does that every, every Friday. So, um, so Taste is located right in Kakaako, kind of nearby where R&D is, right? Yeah, we're on Oahe Street in uh-huh. Kakaako. It's just one building over from R&D. And, and this is, is this your concept? Uh, this has been part of our dream for Street Grinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite honestly, we, we had, you know... created the Twitter handle and then the dream became alive after that um, based on the passion and the passion is to continue to create and provide resources to Hawaii's fledgling small business food entrepreneurs. So you're basically kind of positioning as like a food incubator, you know, giving people a sort of a start to try out their... Absolutely. Like uh, Wedge Lee, I mean, he had uh, owner to go and he had his food truck and I think he kind of Stop that for a while, but I, I know his you know one of his passions is is cooking, and he had some great stuff that yeah. came out of that uh, food truck. Yeah, now you can have it every Tuesday until the end of May over at Taste in Kakako, okay. and so um, it's definitely been part of our dream. Um, we ki- we kind of partnered with um, Chef Mark Noguchi and mm-hmm. Amanda Corby from Under My Umbrella um, because we thought it would be a great way to actually m- bring the two worlds together and collide. Um, we bring the food trucks to taste, um, and they bring in their chef community. And so we've had um, Leanne Wong from Top Chef, who's a great friend of Mark Noguchi's. Um, like I said, we have Quentin Fry, and um, of course, Chef Mark Noguchi also serves weekly at taste. And so we, we get to experience the best of both worlds. We have private chefs that come in um, uh, Leslie Ashburn, who does macrobiotic mm-hmm, foods, mm-hmm. and um, you know Momen, who is actually a private chef to the stars that many of us would not otherwise have been able to experience as food. Now we'll be serving it taste every other week, and so we can actually take these two worlds. Which when we started, the big question was, how do you think the brick and mortars will feel about the food trucks? And now we're actually living cohesively under one mm-hmm, roof. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk a little bit more about the technology now, Brandon. Um, I like what Bert said about a, a restaurant incubator, but I mean, is there a is there a business model that you're you're pursuing? Are is there is there other practices in other cities that you're you're following in the footsteps of or is your uh, interest basically in providing services for these uh, cooks and these chefs that come through to help them on that ladder to perhaps launching a full restaurant well a lot of the technology is about getting the word out and sharing the information about the menus and the chefs Um, most of the modeling that we do is based on the food and the restaurant model yeah, but um, as far as what goes on in the rest of the world, you know, we did do a little bit of research to see if there was anybody else out there doing something quite like this. Um, and quite honestly, we didn't find that. We we saw some hints or situations. And, of course, there's lots of restaurants now that will do a pop-up dining experience within their space. But a full-time um, restaurant that's serving, um, you know, almost every day of the week, um, a different chef or food vendor from the streets, um, 
that we we didn't at least find anybody yeah. out so, there. So so where where um are you publicizing the different menus that are on uh taste or the different chefs that are coming through taste? Um again with Street Grind starting as a Twitter handle, we are very accustomed to using social media mm-hmm. as a big way to share the information with what to expect every day, the menus that's going to be popping up. Um of course we have our website um, and, and just the network that we have that follows us. But other than that, you know, if you walk by taste, we have a huge 20 foot calendar hanging in the window <laughs> so that you can actually see what's coming up for the rest of the month. So, so if you go and if you follow street grinds, uh, that would pretty much tweet out like the current menu that's coming up yeah. with, uh, with whatever's, uh, being cooked at taste. Absolutely. Oh, um, okay. Or even better yet, you can follow, uh, taste table. Mm-hmm on Twitter and um that's you know we we share it more frequently via Taste Table and Taste Table's Facebook page. Well, I'm loving the story because both for Taste and for Eat the Street it started with a dream and a Twitter handle and yet somehow <laughs> you find a way to grow that into a business and I really liked how you described it like a a musical venue that just has different bands coming through play, playing a concert for a number of days and yeah. if that's what you want to do you come down and check it out. Uh we did get some uh, recommendations or gadget actually we got a gadget and an app so I wanted to share that uh, coming in on Facebook. Kaz said that she recommends My Fitness Pal. It's a great app for tracking what you eat. It has a fantastic database and easily allows you to add recipes using a scanner with product UPC codes and just typing in stuff yourself. And it incorporates exercise into the mix. Have you heard of My Fitness Pal or do you use anything like that on your devices? Um, I have actually heard of My Fitness Pal before, but I'm not currently using it on my new device. Mm, uh, and uh, we, I should also mention Kim. Oh, Kim Binstead. <laughs> She's actually, uh, I think, probably on the Big Island wearing a hazmat suit pretending to be on Mars. <laughs> but uh, she said uh, she's not sure if it counts as a gadget, but she loves her pig box. I guess is the uh, it's like la- emu? Yeah, emu it's like an emu in a box for a condo. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can just do it uh, in a perhaps a more urban environment. So I kind of like that, you know, sort of a self-contained emu. Yeah, and I- you can do it uh, maybe in your townhouse outside on the lanai, but you could actually do something that you would normally have to dig a hole in the ground to cut. Well, I, I posted, when she posted that, I asked her if uh, that's something that they're contemplating using as a device on Mars because she's <laughs> actually on the big island uh, uh, with uh, the folks uh, doing testing some menus for uh, potential use on on. Let's say the moon or Mars. But she said mission. she said the problem is that the uh, pig box would work only if they could find pigs on Mars. <laughs> yeah, that is probably one requirement for yeah. sure. But definitely thanks to Kim and Kaz for sending in their thoughts. Uh, so, Pony, you know, again, you have this path from Twitter to business, and you said this is kind of a long-term dream. I am kind of curious – as a restaurant incubator, as a food truck advocate, what is – I already want you to kind of tell us what's the next – next big thing in food. I mean, after this is all a well-running machine, where do you see this going? Yeah, I I mean, I would absolutely love it if we could pull more of our chefs out of their four walls and put them into a mobile truck for for lots of reasons, but one being that they get to experiment um, to the average Joe on the street, maybe some of their concepts and their recipes. Um, and almost do a test market experience outside while, you know, the customer actually gets to experience a, a really gourmet 
menu item. I mean, just imagine if Mavro was in a sh- in a truck rolling down the street and maybe offering a different way to have confit or mm-hmm. you know foie gras uh, would be amazing. Uh, I also see that there's great opportunity for the mobile industry to move beyond food. And so, you know, why can't there be a mobile florist and why can't there be a mobile gym um, and, and, and really making it more feasible and, and uh, available to people who work downtown? Um, you know, it's a real green approach to bring the business to you versus, you know, 10 cars driving to your business. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, this, this idea of, of letting the chef sort of get out of the four walls and, and be a little bit more uh, sort of experimental. Yeah. Is that something that uh, they've expressed interest to do, uh, the, you know, to get out of what they might be sort of, I don't know, maybe it might be their comf- comfort zone or maybe they're, yeah. uh, they're used to doing whatever the menu is on in oh, the exactly. restaurant. No, I think that, you know, they have to abide by a food philosophy when mm-hmm. they open their four, uh, their doors and, and live in those four walls. They have to present a food philosophy and be consistent with it. But, you know, who's to say that they're not inspired by pancakes and want to make, you know, a, a pancake line, um, which, they, again, what if that was Mavro? And what if he mm. wants to do pancakes? Mm-hmm. He, he mm-hmm. could probably not um, feasibly execute that in his in his current location. And so innovating and sharing and maybe reconceptualizing, again, um, you know, with Chef Quentin Fry from Salt being able to execute um, a Mexican street food concept out of taste is different than what you would get from salt over on Wiley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I like how you described it. You know, I mean, when you talk about starting a business, they say location, location, location. Mm-hmm. And I can think of a lot of restaurants that unfortunately have horrible locations, yeah. and yet the food is worth that hassle. But why not make them more mobile? Um, and uh, uh, Brandon, you know, I, uh, before we uh, wrap, I was curious what you see as the future of the consumer uh, side of this. Uh, a lot of people talk about Yelp. It seems like Yelp is the 800-pound gorilla. But as restaurants become more nebulous and more mobile and perhaps coming and going, where do you think uh, things might go for me as a diner as far as uh, uh, being able to review or be a participant in a conversation about food? Well, I definitely think that technology plays a big role in that future, especially when it comes to taking pictures of food and sharing your experience. You build you know, this following and then you milk that following with all your interactions throughout your day. When that comes to food, people are going to really latch on because everybody loves to eat. So I think that's where it's going to go is, you know, pictures and community around food. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Pony, do you see the Hawaii market being uh, a sophisticated food market? I think that we are sophisticated. I can personally say with some bias that we are trendsetting in the food industry at mm-hmm. this point. Um, and, and so from that perspective, you know, I, I see a lot of coming out of the islands, um, sustainability and food production and how we eat it and prepare it and cook it, um, doesn't only apply to the food, but also to the chef that's making it and making sure that our small businesses and our small food industry chefs are sustainable and sourcing from them as well. Well, you know, and you always talk about uh, when you want to use local ingredients and stuff, your supply might be constrained. But here now you can work with what's available, even to the small quantity for a small number of days, and nobody holds that against you. So, uh, Pony, where can someone find out more about taste or about Eat the Street? Well, the best place to go, I think, is our hub, which is streetgrindswithaz.com. Okay. And you can find all the information there. Sounds Fantastic. good. Pony and Brandon Eskew are from Street Grinds. Alan Saladom and Brian Dote are both app developers. And we want to thank everybody for joining us today. 
Thank, thank you, you so much. I enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Please join us next week when we'll have a special rebroadcast of one of our favorite shows during Challenge 2013. And, of course, if you miss any part of this this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarksCafe.org. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Ghosts I've Met and a song called Metal Strings. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. I try to tell myself If there are lies in my words, will you help me? Everything I heard I did to you from someone else Nothing here would make more sense than from your mouth to my mouth